Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello and welcome to New Books in Native American Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. My name is James Mackay and I'm an assistant professor in British and American literatures at European University Cyprus, as well as one of the founder editors of the Open Access Indigenous Studies journal Transmotion. I'm pleased today to be talking with Kirsten Squint about her book, Leanne Howe at the Intersections of Southern and Native American Literature, the first full-length study of one of the most influential present-day Choctaw novelists and thinkers. Kirsten is an Associate Professor of English at High Point University and has published several journal articles before. This is her first monograph. I also learned today from her university bio, she's a keen paddleboarder and sailor. Kirsten, thank you for talking with me today. Thank you for having me. This is really exciting. Yeah. Okay, so um, uh, Leanne Howe's name obviously should be well known to anyone already conversant with Native American cultures and particularly literary studies, but it's quite likely we have listeners who aren't familiar with her work. So could we start by introducing Leanne and give us some idea of who she is and what her work is like? Absolutely. Leanne Howe is such an interesting writer and thinker um, and figure. Um, she She's really, you know, in Native literary studies, she's sort of seen as a 21st century writer, but she's been involved in the Native American literary scene since the late 1980s. Um, her first play, which she co-wrote with Roxy Gordon, uh, Big Pow Wow, uh, was staged in um, in Texas, she was a part of um, this Native literary scene around the Dallas-Fort Worth area. Um, she co-wrote another play with Roxy Gordon that uh, is a little more well-known. Um, and that play was performed throughout the Midwest. Um, and I'm blanking on the name. James, can you do you remember the name? They performed it at Dolls a couple of years ago. And, uh, um, ring, ring's on, sorry. No, I'm going to be in a problem. <laughs> Okay. Well, um, but in in any case, she and she and Roxy co-wrote two wonderful plays, and um, and I'm thinking of her newest play, which she's co-wrote co-written with someone else called Sideshow Freaks and Circus Engines. But in any case, she had these two wonderful co-written plays, and then she went on after that collaboration with Roxy. um, She went on to start writing on her own, and of course, Shell Shaker, I think, is her most famous novel, uh, which came out in 2001. But she's fantastically interesting in that she, you know, writes poetry, she writes drama, she writes literary criticism, she writes novels, she's got this fantastic memoir, Chalk Talking on Other Realities. Um, And, you know, everything that she says, she says it in such an interesting way, and in a way that people seem to have never really thought about before. Um, So and in terms of the Southeast and Shell Shaker, I mean, this is really the first novel that takes a look at contemporary Choctaw culture, and then goes back, um, you know, pre removal, um, to what was happening in terms of those affiliations between um, different groups within the Choctaw and, um, and different colonial powers. And so she's just coming at, um, all of this history and culture with such a such a fascinating perspective. And she's funny. She's really funny. Yeah, you can't really talk about Leanne without humour, can you? <laughs> um, no, and, and you can't. Without pretending that I haven't just looked it up, it's um, Indian Radio Days that you were thinking of, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. I'm quite embarrassed about that because I love that play. Uh, and I saw it performed at Nalls and I just, I got all excited. And I was like, oh, yes, what is the name of that play? But yes, I think Indian Radio Days um, is more well-known than Big Pow Wow because, you know, it's been published in an anthology of Native drama. Um, and there's, it's, you know, Big Pow Wow is is clearly a first. Um, in my book, I talk about, I actually really love Big Pow Wow. Um, but, you know, you can see that it's it's a first work by two young writers. And, uh, but the seeds of so many things that Leanne does um, in Big Pow Wow come out in later works. You've got this Alikchi, which is the Choctaw word for healer. You've got this sort of ancestor figure who comes in to help this young Choctaw woman. Um, and you see that in Shell Shaker with Shakpatina. You see that in Me. Kings with Isolde. 
Um, so there are a lot of seeds there. There's like this, um, the bone picking, which, you know, the scene has been much sort of written about of all the things that get written about in Shell Shaker. People write about that bone picking scene a lot, uh, in thinking about Choctaw death ways. And, um, and that is in big powwow. And so you see her kind of working that out in later work. So I'm fascinated by that play. Um, it's, like I said, it's a first work, but you see um, the seeds of so much of what she does happening in her later works. And that that was back in the 80s. I mean, she's had a long writing career, but I think, you know, folks in Native studies, I think, tend to know that. But folks outside of Native studies, when they sort of discover her, it's like, wow, what an amazing writer. Uh, but she's been doing this for a long time. And if you're going to conceptualize her in terms of waves, as some people have sort of talked about Native literature coming in waves, um, you'd think of her as a second generation writer? Second wave writer? I think, I think probably so. I mean, I certainly see. Um, uh, it's interesting because the reason, the way that I um, first came to read Shellshaker, which was in two thousand six, when I was working on my dissertation. Uh, my dissertation was on um, native spiritualities as resistance to European and U.S. settler colonialism, and I had a chapter on ceremonies and. I didn't want to write about Silco's ceremony because so much had been said about it. Um, so I was looking at James Welch's Fool's Crow and I was looking at um, Mama Day's Housemaid of Dawn and just doing some research, I came across, you know, stuff on the internet about Shellshaker. And I asked my dissertation director, I was at Louisiana State University and he wasn't familiar with the book, but he got in touch with uh, Eric Gary Anderson, who's at George Mason University and has done a lot of work in this field uh, that we were calling the native that people are calling the native South, which for my book, um, you know, I have some, some issues with it. And I, I talk about that. Um, but, uh, Eric said, yeah, that'd be really great to see somebody doing some analysis of shell shaker alongside of these works. And, um, so, but one of the things I, I thought a lot about with shell shaker kind of coming back to, you know, first generation native writers is, um, the degree to which ceremony was an influence on that text, and of course, has influenced so many texts. Um, but I see Eliane kind of, you know, she says it took her 10 years to write Shellshaker, and there's a tremendous amount of archival research that went into that book. But um, but I definitely see like that kind of influence on that. And, and then later you see her really moving into, I think, a voice that is just so uniquely Leanne Howe. Not to say that Shellshaker is not uniquely Leanne Howe, but um, I see more influences. Uh, I see her, I feel like she's taking more risks in some of her later pieces. Yeah, I'm nodding vigorously to that. Um, so you were already working on American Indian literatures when you came across her work. Um, how did you come to that in the first place? Well, I uh, found myself um, teaching on the Navajo Nation in um, 1997 and found myself is literally the case. I'm, I'm from Kentucky. I went to um, a couple of universities in the Midwest and was finishing my master's thesis and moved out to New Mexico. And I had to get a job and it turned out I wasn't qualified for much with a creative writing degree other than teaching. So <laughs> I tried to get some writing jobs, but I wound up teaching in a high school on the Navajo Nation in Northwest New Mexico. And um, that was when I, uh, I encountered U.S. settler colonialism, uh, given my background um, as kind of a, a, well, honestly, someone coming from a not particularly um, I guess basically a poor white girl from Kentucky. Uh, I never thought of myself as a person of privilege. And then I found myself on an Indian reservation in New Mexico, and I realized the world was very different than what I had imagined it to be. And I couldn't articulate. I was 20, um, 23 um, when I moved out there. So I couldn't articulate what I was seeing. Um, and then when I went to LSU, and what I mean by that is, what I was experiencing in terms of my position in the world and that of my, my students who were middle school and high school kids. And um, when I went back to get my PhD at 29, I went to LSU and I studied, um, I was looking, I was interested in indigeneity broadly. And so I was taking some classes in Caribbean literature, which of course LSU is a great place to be for that. Um, and I started reading a lot of, um, you know, French colonial writers and post-colonial theory. And Albert Mamie's The Colonizer and the Colonized um, gave me the language to understand what I had seen on the reservation, which was that 
Um, there are two kinds of colonizers, the one who goes to the colony and realizes his position of privilege and chooses to exploit it, and the other who goes to the colony and realizes his or her position of privilege and chooses to leave. And you can't leave settler colonialism. That's the thing. Um, but I did uh, make a decision and understand that I wasn't that being in that system was a problem for me. Now I'm older. I don't think I would have made the same choice that I did when I was that age, but it being that experience on the reservation taught me so much and, and really changed the rest of my life. Now that said, I, did study native lit when I was an undergrad. I had a teacher who was into Simon Ortiz and Lucy Tapahanso and, um, and Silco. And I did actually meet Lucy Tapahanso when I was an undergrad. So I was interested and I had experience, but then kind of going out and, uh, living in Indian country and then staying in the Southwest for about five years, I wound up teaching at a community college for a while and had a lot of native students there. I created the first native lit class at my community college. It's, so it's always been, you know, I wouldn't say it's always been sort of, or perhaps it has actually growing up in Kentucky. I talk about this in my book. It's ridiculous. There are no state or federally recognized tribes in Kentucky because of the, the history of the state, but that's because of a long series of treaties with the Cherokees. Um, so I've always sort of thought about it, I think. Uh, but those particular experiences, living on the reservation, having a lot of experiences with Native students, um, definitely brought me to that place where I wanted to write my dissertation about Native Lit. And moving back to the Southeast by going to Louisiana made me start to think about tribes in the Southeast because there are no state or federally recognized tribes in Kentucky. I I really believe the vanishment myth. Um, I live in North Carolina now. There are the most, um, there are the, the largest population of Native Americans in North Carolina than any other state east of the Mississippi. So now I'm much more aware of these things. But I think, you know, I went out west and came back east and then realized, wow, you know, there are Native people all around me and I haven't been seeing them. And quite frankly, that is the experience of a lot of Southerners. So that's kind of what brought me to this field of the Native South. Yeah, and that kind of speaks to the next question I wanted to ask as well, which is, uh, you know, th th this is obviously based on personal experience and, and self-understanding. And then the book itself um, has clearly been based quite a lot on work that you've done um, with Leanne, including two lengthy interviews, one of which is in the book. So how did that relationship begin with her? and What's it meant to the formation of the book? Oh, I wouldn't say everything, but an awful lot. Um, so... Uh, so what happened was when I was writing my dissertation and I decided to include shell shaker in that chapter on ceremonies, I saw that in back in 2006, there just wasn't a lot of, um, uh, a lot of research out there on her work. And, um, it just so happened that a friend of mine from LSU was going to the society for the study of Southern literature conference at William and Mary in, um, in Virginia in Williamsburg in 2008. And she said, you know, I know you're finishing up your dissertation, but, you know, Leanne Howe is going to be a, a featured speaker at this conference I'm going to. And she was a Southern lit person. I did not identify as a Southern literary critic at all at this point in my career. And uh, she said, but Leanne Howe is going to be there and Craig Womack is going to be there. And, um, uh, and, uh, and so, you know, maybe you could interview her. And I was like, okay, that's a good idea. So I asked and she said, yes. And I went and, and it was interesting because, um, first of all, <laughs> you know, as a grad student, you're reading like every, every theory you can find. And we're getting, you know, most of us get a lot of, um, background in, in the Western, um, European tradition and, you know, a lot of deconstruction and all that. And so, um, I had read, as many native critics as I, I could find and theorists. Um, but something happened when I was writing my dissertation and that was American Indian literary nationalism. And I kind of missed it because I was writing my dissertation and, and so involved in, in just thinking, thinking about so many things like reading the Popol Vuh and, and all kinds of things. It's just all over the place. And, um, and so when I interviewed Leanne, I feel like I came at the interview with a lot of good questions and some kind of, 
wrongheaded questions, given the place that Native Literary Studies was at the time. And she quickly, uh, she quickly helped me figure that out. <laughs> um, and what was happening, one, part of what was happening at that conference was um, Reasoning Together had just come out. And of course, Craig Womack was there as well. Allison Hedgecoach, she was the other writer who was there. Anyway, I had a conversation, had the interview with Leanne, had a conversation with Craig Womack, and started thinking really hard about what um, what American Indian literary nationalism meant. And the problem was my dissertation was about, was about because of this experience I just explained to you about being on the reservation and thinking about colonialism. I was trying to write about post-colonial theory and Native American studies and literature, and I didn't know that that critical moment had kind of passed. <laughs> and so um, in any case, Leanne and Craig said, read Reasoning Together and read American Indian Literary Nationalism, which I just hadn't done. It's all, it was all kind of at that moment. Um, and it changed a lot of the way I was thinking about the work that I was doing. And um, and so I won't kind of go into what happened to my dissertation because that there, there were some impacts on that. But um, that was the beginning for Leanne and I. And um, and so I think, you know, she was very much like, okay, there are some things you need to understand. And, and she was very helpful in kind of, kind of getting me to the place I think where I could write the book about her. Um, but we didn't have the same relationship at that point that we do now. So um, my uh, dissertation director had, was a previous president of uh, president of the organization for the multi-ethnic um, lit of the U.S. And so he really thought I should send the interview to, to Mellis to, to be published. And I said, okay, I'm going to do this because I didn't have a national publication at that time. And I emailed Leanne and I said, okay, I'm going to send this to Mellis. And she said, uh, oh, I'm not big enough for that. <laughs> and, and I'm a really stubborn person, James, just so you know. <laughs> so I, my response to her my response to her, yeah, gra- you know, just just graduated student that I was. I said, well, I'm going to try anyway. She's like, here, try some of these other journals. And I was like, um, I'll do that after I try Malice. <laughs> and you know what? They took it. And so, and, and you know, we were both like, whoa. <laughs> so we spent the next year um, revising that interview and really getting it into shape. And, um, and I think over the course of that year, one, she, she saw that I'm a stubborn person. (laughs) And also, um, you know, I just, I think that we developed a kind of working relationship that was really, um, really exciting and interesting. Um, and then, but at that point I still wasn't planning to write a book about her that hadn't kind of crossed my mind. Um, and then, in 2011, which was after I started my tenure track position at where I'm at now, um, and after my dissertation had been rejected in book form, and part of the reason for that was that I knew once I had talked to them at that conference that that my that my dissertation was theoretically flawed, like the the structure was flawed because I was trying to do too many things, and I was. It was just, here's the thing. I was trying to pull together post-colonial theory and Native American Indian literary nationalism. And I was trying to pull all this stuff together. And I just didn't have the theoretical chops to do it. And when Jody Bird's The um, the Transit of Empire came out and I read it, I said, wow, like she did it. Yay. But that was not what my dissertation turned book was. And so I had stepped away from that project and said, okay, well, I'll try to publish a couple of things from it, but it's not going to be a book. And I had had, you know, some folks, some some people who had been mentors to me say, oh, no, don't abandon that book. And I was like, I'm ready to be done with it. And so I thought, what what do I really want to write about? Like, what am I really interested in? And my thought was Leanne Howe. And so I just kind of sort of softly, <laughs> not telling her, not telling anyone. Well, I think maybe I did maybe tell Eric Anderson um, that I was going to write a book about Leanne Howe. And I started working on a couple chapters and it just happened that that book uh, was conceived, if you will, right around the time that my son was also uh, came into existence. And uh, I sort of like think about the development of that book and the growth of my son because he's six going on seven now. And so these things are kind of the the growth of these projects are kind of like um, they're, they're both they're growing up. And so I think that's fascinating. But so I wrote a couple chapters the summer that I was, you know, summer that I was pregnant and then I had a child and then I was incredibly busy uh, for a while. And then I was able to kind of get back to the book. And in that time, 
2013, Leanne agreed to another interview. So we sat down at the Native American Lit Symposium in Minneapolis, and we did that second interview, which is in the book. Um, And at that point, I had really begun to think about the South. I had become more involved in Southern literary studies, you know, partly, I think, because of my own cultural background, but also partly because I was really seeing this huge gap, one, in Southern literary studies, like, why aren't people talking about Indians? (laughs) And also in Native American studies, like, there's just not, I mean, there has been work that's been done about the South, certainly. And I don't want it to diminish that. But also, I think the study, literary studies of Native Americans in the South is really, it's really growing and, and burgeoning. And there's some interesting work being done in it. So I, could, I saw, like, I realized I was just very passionate about these things. Um, so got rolling on the book. And I have to say, early on in writing the, this book, um, I had a scholar that I greatly admire tell me, um, don't write this book. She's not well known enough. And I said, (laughs) I just thought, actually, I just, it never occurred to me to like not write the book. (laughs) I just said, okay, well, that's a bummer, but I disagree with you. And, um, and I kept going and, um, I did, you know, I, I kept trying to get an advanced contract and I got rejected by three different publishers, but not because nobody was interested in the book. Um, it was because one, their grant money ran out or, oh, I'm sorry, we don't do single author studies or, um, actually it was only two now that I think about it, but lots of people were interested. Lots of people are interested in Leanne Howe's work, or at least academic publishers are. So, um, so anyway, to kind of come back to your question, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm definitely like telling you a very long version of this story to come back to your question about the relationship with Leanne. So after that second interview, um, and the book really was kind of gaining speed and I was getting a lot of publisher interest. Um, I began to be able to have more one-on-one conversations with her that were not, um, you know, kind of within the rigid structures of a formal interview. And part of that had to do with the fact that she got a job at the university of Georgia. And so (laughs) now we live very close to one another and I find myself, I have you know, I've had conferences in Athens, Georgia and, and things like that, or our path would cross um, for various reasons. And so we've gotten to spend a lot of time together kind of hashing out things. And so she's been very open to me just emailing her and saying, oh, OK, I'm, I'm saying this thing. What do you think about this? But at the same time, I try to be very cautious, like, I know it's kind of weird for her that somebody's writing a book about her work. <laughs> and so I try to not say, Hey, what do you think about my idea? I don't, I don't go at it that way, but like, can you just kind of clarify for me what was happening with you and Roxy Gordon in Dallas, you know, in 1980, you know what I mean? That kind of thing. So in any case, that's kind of how this relationship came to be. And I have to say that at this point, I'm just very thankful because as I say in the acknowledgements to the book, it could not be the book that it, that it is without her um, being so so willing to be open and talk about these things with me. Yeah. Okay. I, I've got a couple of things I've sort of bookmarked in that that I want to come back to briefly. But one um, is American Indian literary nationalism. Um, just for the benefit of listeners to this podcast, could you explain it and and her relationship to it? Because I don't always place her within that specific context necessarily. So I'd like to hear your thoughts on that. Yeah, I, I don't necessarily think she always is sort of seen right in the center of that. And partly because I think tribalography, which is her own, you know, conception of um, or a methodology, if you will, of, of kind of native uh, literary creation um, isn't exactly that. It isn't exactly uh, nationalism, but she does have an interesting piece and in reasoning together about Choctaw literary nationalism and um, sort of what it means to write from the perspective of particular people from a particular land. Like the Choctaw people's origin story is coming out of a mound um, that is in present day Mississippi, the Naniwaya. And so that means everything in terms of their conception of the way that they exist in the world, right? And so she's got this piece in Reasoning Together. She wrote a piece for, um, a, it was a Choctaw history collection um, that was, uh, uh, came out right around the same time, actually. Um, and she talks about Ahoya East Chizba, who is the corn woman. Um, and so, sort of how their stories come out of the land and how the land shapes those stories. And so 
I mean, for me to sort of think about her as being, for one thing, there's this issue of tribal specificity, right? Um, and I try to get into that in the book with the idea of chalk talking. And what does that mean to be talking, uh, to be telling these stories in English with this Choctaw infused worldview? Um, so for me, that's kind of where Leanne fits in there. Um, tribalography, and I didn't know if you wanted to, to talk about this later. I, I do, I do is, want to come to those later, to talk, talking okay, about tribalography okay. a little later. Okay. I, just, I just want to sort of stick with the conception of the book first and then go into the theory uh, a little bit further down. Okay. Um, so just in, in terms of the concept of the book, um, uh, there's very few single authors monographs still in native literary studies. There's a few on Erdrich and Silco, but, but, but really not very many at all. What, why do you think that that has a particular value? Well, <laughs> it's funny when you said that, uh, it took me back in 2016. I'm, I will answer your question, but it, I immediately thought Faulkner when you said that. And I'll tell you why. Um, in 2016, uh, the University of Mississippi, it, it annually hosts this Faulkner and Yaknabatafa conference. And in 2016, their theme was the Native South. So Leanne was a featured speaker. I had a panel there with, um, with a couple of other folks who do work on the Native South. And all I could think, and it, you know, I work in Southern Literary Studies. I teach Faulkner. Um, if I'm going to teach an American modernist, I'm going to teach Faulkner. Why? Because he engages in issues of race um, in terms of African-American and Native Americans that I'm interested in engaging in the classroom. Um, I'm not a Faulkner scholar by any means. But what I saw when I went to Oxford, Mississippi was, wow, this is an industry. And I kind of knew that. I have some close friends who are Faulkner scholars. But the idea that people can just keep churning out book after book about this one writer just kind of blows my mind. And for me, I think just to come back to like Leanne in particular, and then to get to your question more broadly, I mean, she has such a fascinating mind. Her works are so interesting. I think Shellshaker is incredibly underread and understudied and, and I value her other works as well. And I know a lot of folks really um, teach, a lot of folks teach Amigo Kings for a lot of really important reasons. But to me, still, Shellshaker is just an absolute phenomenon in terms of what she does in that novel. Um, so I think um, what, what, you, what you get with a single author study is you get this really deep dive, not only into um, the individual works, but also kind of like the way that writer thinks. Now, why do I think a lot of this hasn't happened in Native literary studies? I think, you know, comparatively speaking, you have less, and now I'm just like throwing things out without actually any evidence for that, just FYI. <laughs> I think there are comparatively less scholars. I do see one thing that has fascinated me in the last like, I guess, five years is I look around at people that I've known over the years, critics in, you know, American literature, and I see them starting to teach more Native lit. Um, I think that the protest at Standing Rock uh, has sort of largely influenced American culture. I don't know how long standing that will be, but I think a lot of people are now saying like, okay, but what about the Native American perspective on this? I hope, you know, I really hope. Um, but I do see more folks kind of taking on native native writing. And I, I think a lot of times people who study American lit who aren't trained in native studies, they're a little fearful of taking it on because, well, quite frankly, you're looking at a lot of cultures and a lot of languages and it's a lot of work. You know, I'm a comparatist. I come from a comparative literature background and probably I should have gone to a native studies program for graduate school. Um, I wanted to returned to studying French. I was interested in living in Louisiana. LSU had a good program. I, I did comparative literature, but I realized when I got done that really it's, I'm an interdisciplinarian and native studies is obviously an interdisciplinary field. So, but I think, so I think that's part of why is that we just haven't had as many critics in the field. Um, but, you know, I guess too, there's this I'm working on another book right now that's not a deep dive into one author. And, and there's kind of an appeal of looking at different works. And I, I guess maybe part of it has to do with people's approaches. Um, but I, I'm someone who really likes to go deep, deep, deep. Um, it could also be, you know, I, I fear a little bit that people will say, oh, well, Kirsten wrote the book on Leanne Howe and now we're done and we have that book. You know, I would, I think more people should write books on Leanne Howe. I think that more of this should be done. I mean, Louise Erdrich, for example, you mentioned her. My gosh, this summer I have finished um, 
oh shoot, the most recent one that everyone calls Atwoodian. I can't think of the the title off the top of my head. Um, but I just finished The Plague of Doves because I teach The Roundhouse and I've read La Rose and I didn't realize The Plague of Doves was the first in a trilogy um, about justice, which makes a lot of sense. But Louis Serdrick, my gosh, you know, what an astonishing mind and what amazing books she writes. It's, I mean... I think of any native writer, there's more of sort of an industry around her, if you will, but it's still nothing like the Faulkner industry, right? I mean, so to answer your question, I don't really know. Uh, I suspect it's because there are less scholars and I suspect because scholars who do like, quote, mainstream literature um, are afraid to take it on, but I don't know. Okay. And and when you were um, conceiving of your book, um, you've obviously structured it in a particular way that sort of is very, it's almost a spiraling structure. It allows you to really go deep into the specific texts. How how did you actually think of structuring this? How how did you get into the planning of it? It was actually um, really intuitive and I did not plan it. And in fact, I didn't even realize I had done it until (laughs) I was, had pretty much drafted every body chapter and the intro. And I had some different folks reading it, which is so funny. You know, you write this thing and yet you don't realize a really basic thing about it, but that's what happened to me. And Eric Anderson had read one of the chapters and he said, you know, I do think you're going to have to address why it is that you keep talking about shell shaker in every chapter and you haven't just limited it to one chapter. And I was like, Oh my God, you're right. (laughs) It didn't even occur to me because from the very beginning, when I had envisioned the book, I thought, okay, here's how this stuff is working in the South. Here's how this stuff is sort of working its way out of the South. Here's how this stuff is working on the global stage. And uh, and I realized I had never, you know, I didn't do my dissertation like that. This other monograph that I'm working on right now, I haven't structured it like that. Why did I do that? Uh, because Leanne's work is so interesting that you can kind of look at it in, from each of these different perspectives. So I had to kind of take a moment and think, okay, so I've done this weird thing and I've pretty much written the whole book. And now I have to tell people why I did that. Not, I'm not actually sure. <laughs> and so, <laughs> wait, I have an answer now. <laughs> I thought about this long and hard um, because it, my intent was always like I'm starting with like the Choctaw land base. I'm starting with Naniwaya. You know, that's so central in so many of her texts, the the Genesis place for the Choctaw people. Um, But then I'm also like moving outward, Louisiana, the Gulf Coast, you know, larger other parts of Mississippi. Uh, And then of course, Oklahoma and removal. And then Choctaws in California, right? Uh, And then of course in Romania. And, um, And so I realized that there was a logic in her work. And also, you know, Pollock and Ellen talks about this um, in The Sacred Hoop. And she talks about kind of um, American Indian concepts of time. And I know I, I just have to, you know, say the thing where I know people have critiqued this text as essentialist. But I think Craig Womack makes a great argument about this, about this and reasoning together, which is the point that she does do a lot of tribally specific stuff. And I think this in particular, this idea of this kind of um, circular kind of conceptions that move throughout Native American epistemologies is important. And so I was thinking about that with Leanne and the way when she talks about the stomp, she talks about stomp dances, she talks about ball fields and this kind of like um, counterclockwise motion that seems uh, indicative of uh, particular native epistemologies. And then in, um, in this documentary she did about the Eastern band of Cherokee, she talks about the sacred spiral of fire. And that was the moment I was rewatching that as I was kind of working on some of the last chapters of the book. And, um, and I was like, that's it. I'm spiraling outward from Choctaw lands. That's exactly what I did in this book. Um, And so that was, that was kind of it for me. I didn't, I actually didn't intend it. I feel like the work, I feel like her work led me to that organization. Okay. Yeah. I can see that, especially from that documentary, because you actually have the spiral of fire appear on screen, don't you, at one point. Yeah. I remember that. Right. Yeah. Okay. um, So let's get into the question of Southern studies. And I'm going to start with the contentious part, which is that some scholars have described Leanne Howe as only being marginally Southern. So do you want to deal with (laughs) why you've chose this lens to look at her through? Sure. Um, Yeah. That's exactly the quote that I I use in the book. So, um, 
Basically, I mentioned earlier, I have an issue with this term native South, um, but I, I don't try to do away with it because it's been institutionalized. There's a history journal called Native South, which started in 2008. And I understand why the term exists. But what happened was after the we got this name, Native South, um, there began to be a debate or I don't know, I saw it as a debate. I don't know that people were having it overtly about how you define the native South. And that journal defines it as um, the people, native people living in the South or those descended from tribes from the South or the Southeast. It's more, I think it's more helpful to say the Southeast and I'll also explain why in a minute. And then, yes, we had two books come out in about 2010, 2011, um, the people who stayed and then Melanie Benson Taylor's um, reconstructing the native South, both of which made the argument that, well, and I wouldn't say that the people who stayed were saying these are the only Native people, but they focused on Native people still living in the South, either because their their people stayed behind to evade Indian removal um, or whatever. Um, and yes, and so Melanie Benson Taylor made the argument that Howe's works were only marginally Southern because she's an Oklahoma-born Choctaw. Um, and so if my definition aligns with any of these, it's probably closer to that uh, of the history journal Native South in the sense that um, I think we need to think about Natives who may not have grown up in the sort of boundaries of the traditional South um, or the Southeast, if you will. Uh, and, and, and I think, okay, you just take the example of Thomas King, you know, Canadian Cherokee. It's, it's a little bit tougher of an argument to make with him. Although Greengrass Running Water has syllabary in it, and it uses Cherokee, um, I think it uses Cherokee directions. It's been a long time since I've read it. But it, it has a Cherokee worldview embedded in it. So is there an aspect, can we talk about this, if we talk about Native Southern Lit? I think so. Um, can we say that about all of his works? I, I don't know. I mean, that that doesn't quite make sense. But maybe, I don't know. I'm not a Thomas King scholar. Um I think Leanne Howe is a great example because she's, she very consciously spends a lot of time, um, you know, setting things in the Southeast or even, you know, and chalk talking on other realities in that amazing essay she does. I fuck up in Japan, even in Japan, she's thinking about the Naniwaya. She's thinking about Okchamali, the colors of the Choctaw homelands. That strikes me as bringing something particularly from Southeast indigeneity onto this kind of global stage. Um, so I, I think that calling her marginally Southern doesn't really make sense. But the other problem, which I point out in my book is the South, right? Uh, the South is a colonial construct, the creation of the South, which is the former Confederacy, right? I mean, when we talk about the South, we're talking about the former Confederacy. Um, I mean, okay. People start talking about a lot of things I should say, but really the Southeast is the land, and of course, people can say, oh, when I talk about the South, I'm talking about sweet tea. I'm not talking about the Confederacy, <laughs> but that's not true. <laughs> I mean, it's all kind of rolled up together. Um, so anyway, um, it, so there's this problem, you know, using that name. And so one of the things I point out, and, and I don't know how to get away from the problem. Uh, when you look at the South, okay, so, so to come back to removal for just a minute. Um, so Andrew Jackson, you know, puts the Indian Removal Act into effect. And then gold is discovered on the Cherokee Nation and the state of Georgia decides they're just going to divide up that land and give it to the people of Georgia. And then, of course, in the Supreme Court case, Worcester v. Georgia, the Supreme Court rules in favors of, of the Cherokee and says, okay, this is actually their land. And Andrew Jackson says, well, then you enforce it. So we've got this breakdown of the balance of power in the U.S. government. And Andrew Jackson is siding with Governor Lumpkin of Georgia saying, go ahead, set a fire under those people, get them out of there. Well, what's that doing? That's just supporting states' rights. That's the beginning of the Civil War. So everything, Indian removal is so close in the Southeast, is so closely related to the creation of what becomes the Confederacy. So Native South, <laughs> such a problematic term for so many reasons. Um, so we're, ta we're talking about Southeastern people. The best way to, I think, talk about it has to do with... Um, being tribally specific. But again, you always come across this problem when you bring in colonialism, right? Um, so anyway, it's a problematic term. Uh, I don't, I don't think we can get away from it. Um, I've introduced this idea of the interstate South because 
you know, for, for a lot of reasons, which I talk about in the book. But, you know, I think about the thing Leanne told me, which is like every Choctaw person, I'm just paraphrasing her, that she knows has in Oklahoma has returned to Naniwaya. Like people come in and out of these lands, right? There are still connections to those lands. Um, so, yeah, so I don't, I, obviously, I don't think of her as marginally Southern, if we're going to use that term. Um, but it's, I think it gets stickier when you're talking about you know, anybody descended from a Southeastern tribe. Um, so I don't know. I mean, you know, what if, what about somebody who's Choctaw who grew up in California and has lived there all their life and all their, you know, family back as far as they can remember? I don't know. Um, I think it's really complicated, but I think just to say outright, you know, if somebody's family uh, was removed to Oklahoma, we're not going to call them Southern anymore. I think that's also a problem. Yeah. I, I had a feeling that might spark a, a, a response from you. <laughs> um, can, can you just briefly um, expand a little bit more on the interstate South and, and your theory? Because this is a new term that your book introduces. So what, what do you mean by the interstate South? Sure. So one of the problems I see with the native South is this, um, it comes back to this idea that's at the center of this sort of argument between the ways that this ideas being defined, which is the circulation of indigeneity. And um, I talk about a lot of ways in the book that we see this. I mentioned one, you know, the idea of people in Oklahoma coming back to their sacred homelands and for pilgrimages purposes or to visit family or whatever. Um, clearly, the in Indian removal in all its various iterations is a part of that. Um the powwow circuit, which we see here in North Carolina, and I suspect, I, I think in Louisiana, I'm not sure, you know, those are the two sort of deep, two, two states in the the former Confederacy that I know best, Louisiana, North Carolina. Um, definitely powwow circuit is important. And so we're seeing, you know, like Plains people and just different folks on the powwow circuit coming through. Um, one of the things that there's an interesting article about this for North Carolina native people who for so long in the South, you know, they're sort of existing in this place where the binary, especially because of Jim Crow has been black and white. And so where do, where do native people fit? Right. Um, either they pass or they, they become marginalized for different reasons. This is a long, long history. I won't get into. Um, but so that powwow circuit kind of really affirmed native identity for a lot of folks, particularly in North Carolina. Um, but so, Bottom line is it's about um, circulation, but it's also about something else, which is in between this. And this is kind of this this does come back to ideas for my dissertation that I've tried to work out um, because I had read um, uh, The Third Space of Sovereignty um, by Kevin Bruniel. And then Jody Bird had also cited it in um, The Transit of Empire. And this I'm very interested in because, yes, we're talking about circulation, but we're also talking about in-between identity, being between states, particularly of nationality, right? What does it mean to be Native and to be an American citizen? Um, what does it mean to, like, for the characters in Shell Shaker to, you know, start on the Choctaw Nation in Oklahoma, travel, maybe by interstate highway, which isn't really what I mean when I say interstate, but it is a mode of transit today. Um, and then come back to those homelands and then go, right? And so they're kind of moving through all these different modes of identity. Um, and so that's that's what I'm thinking about with interstate is both circulation of indigeneity and also the in-betweenness of identity that comes with that. And I, I mean, I think, you know, I wouldn't... I. I I, I wanted to use this as an intervention into this conversation about Native South. Um, it doesn't mean that I think that other Native folks in other parts of the United States or Canada or, or anywhere else who are dealing with uh, a tribal national identity and uh, some kind of settler colonial national identity, I'm not saying they don't experience that same kind of thing. I, I think they do. Um, but I, I wanted Interstate South to be an intervention in that particular issue of the native south yeah it allows you to sort of have the tribal nation and the region and a sort of transnationalist perspective all at once it's it's a really nice way of handling it um okay so if we uh spiral back to uh leanne howe's work a little bit um you you introduced it earlier but i think that we've got to go into the terms now and particularly this idea of chalk talking 
What is chop talking? I wanted to call my book. Uh, I wanted to use that term in the title of my book. And my editors were like, no, no, no. Because <laughs> people are going to confuse it with her book. I'm like, but that is what the book's about. And they said, yeah. So we, we spent months literally hashing out a title. Um, so... Uh, so like you say, I spent a lot of time in the introduction talking about this. Um, probably the easiest way to parse it is to say chalk talking is talking chalk talk. Um, but I, I bring in um, the example of Chinua Achebe and the way that he talks about having an Igbo infused English when he writes, right? Why he doesn't write, you know, um, in an indigenous language, why he, why he writes in English as opposed to um, other African writers. And so, of course, you know, you have to talk about the history of boarding schools and the way indigenous languages have been forbidden to be spoken to kind of get at this issue. But the long story short is that Leanne Howe intentionally infuses Choctaw language into her work. Shell Shaker is bookended with Choctaw phrases. In very important moments in her text, she uses Choctaw words like Okchamali, which this blue-green of the Choctaw homelands, Adlikchi, um, the healer figure. So, so Choctaw language is there. And so I say, okay, we can say we're talking about talking Choctaw, except the chalk precedes the talk. And so that means that the tribal language is being privileged here. Um, and I guess kind of to back up just a little bit, the first answer to your question would be, I, I use this and I'm interested in this. Um, well, I guess you asked what it means, but I should say I go into it a lot because she, um, she named a short story that in Evidence of Red, and then that became a play. And then it comes in out in her memoir, Travelogue, which is now, is it a story or is it a memoir or is it both? <laughs> It's very hard to figure out because she's not always working in the expected genres, as Dean Rader has noted and, and others. Um, but it is a lot. Um, it, it, it comes up a lot. And so clearly it's important. Oh, and then the last section of Evidence of Red, it, there's also a section there, and it's all about chalk talk, hood talking. And so that's the other thing I get into is, okay, so... In the United States, and I'm not sure beyond the, that, a lot of people know about the Navajo code talkers from World War II. What a lot of people don't know is that the first code talkers were Choctaw code talkers in World War I, and this began uh, Native code talking. Um, and so, of course, there were several tribes that were code talkers in both world wars, and the, the Navajo code talkers became famous and are absolutely, you know, their, their work was so important to, you know, the United States in that war. Um, but so... So how writes about um, this initial kind of code talking thing in Evidence of Red that, that occurs. And so I talk about this a bit in the book. And so um, I think that you can also read chalk talking as an elision of chalk talk code talking. Um, and so because, as I point out, she, she spends a lot of time talking about codes and coding and talking about sort of cultural coding. Um, and then later in the global chapter, I kind of come back to this point about chalk talk code talking, because this is where I talk about chalk talking on other realities, the stories in that chapter. Um, how does chalk talking then also, besides being this very tribally specific form of uh, communicating, how is it also um, tied to global history, right? How does it, how is it have some kind of global aspect to it? Which when you think about, okay, is how a literary nationalist she is, but she also believes in um, like, you know, the global sort of nature of, of native people and the way that they, the way they engage with, with foreigners, if you will, to use some of her language. So um, anyway, I think there are a few different ways to define um, chalk talking, um, but I think it has to do with coding. I think it has to do with infusing English with the Choctaw language. And then sort of what do linguistic codes then mean as we engage across cultures? And, and from that, um, uh, do you see um, other writers who chalk talk in the same way? Do you place her within a Choctaw literary tradition? Are there other writers you'd read alongside her? I did. I, I talk about this a little bit um, historically. There's um, there's some interesting texts. There's one um, that that's written just after the Treaty of Dancing Rabbit Creek is signed, and I I can't remember his name is Peter. I can't remember. Uh, 19th century Choctaw writer, um, and there was this kind of idea among Choctaw leaders, Peter Pitchlin, I think. Choctaw leaders that um, they were going to lose their culture and language if they didn't start um, sort of 
writing down, having literary tradition. And so there was this kind of move for that. And of course, you know, the Choctaws very early had, um, had schools and they were educating their students. I mean, they were very interested in, in that and sort of maintaining their culture, but also very interested in education. Um, Muriel Hazel Wright, who um, later worked for the Oklahoma, I think, Historical Society, I believe. She has an interesting piece called The Legend of Naniwaya, and it goes into um, a bone picker and some other things that have sort of, you know, I see in Leanne's work. So I, I think I think she is, you know, coming out of a Choctaw literary tradition. Um, but she's also, she's just also a very unique writer in the way that she kind of, she's just very, as you know, very imaginative and creative, but also, you know, has taken her own kind of global experiences and brought that into her writing. As a non-Choctaw yourself, did you find that was a problem for you, sort of trying to read Choctaw codes? Oh, sure. <laughs> I mean, I mean, I, I think, you know, I think that, um, the, obviously this is a tricky question for a lot of reasons, but um, yes, yeah, so I'm, I'm not native and prior to writing this book, I mean, the culture that I know the most about is Navajo culture because, you know, I just spent some time living and working on a reservation, but I'm certainly not an expert in that either. Um, and, and hadn't, haven't really studied that as a discipline. Um, I mean, I've, you know, read some Navajo writers and things like that. Um, yeah, yeah, it's a challenge. I think, I think what, what brought me, there was an interesting kind of perfect storm, if you will. Um, I read her book when I was living in Louisiana and I started learning, uh, I started checking out a a lot of books from LSU about Choctaw history and language. And, you know, like every place around me was a Choctaw name, the Atchafalaya Basin, Bogachito, Bogalusa, all these places are Choctaw place names. Uh, and that's one of the questions we talked about in that first interview. And she talks about like the Choctaws taking earth from them, from, from Naniwaya and carrying it to Oklahoma and like renaming things in, in Oklahoma from Choctaw like place names. So I think, you know, uh, there's a, a million, you know, there are infinite more things that I could do to learn about Choctaw culture and peoples for sure. Um, and it was her writing that brought me to that. But what I mean by perfect storm is I was living in a place that really, I was surrounded by the his Choctaw history and not even, and so many people are not even aware, like, okay, so just give me, I'll give you an example in Baton Rouge where I lived. Um, a lot of people like to call it the red stick because of course that's the English translation of Baton Rouge. Um, but the first name for the place is Istihuma or Itihuma, which means red stick <laughs> in Choctaw because um, I can't remember which tribe it was the, the Natchez, it's a, it's a Muscogean language, right? Um, they had a red stick that marked the place on the river that was a division between the Natchez and I think the Homa people who are also culturally Choctaw. Homa is the word, of course, for red in Choctaw. So, you know, I think, I think living there, reading her work, you know, and a good deal of, of sh- uh, Shell Shaker is set, of course, in New Orleans as well, Um I think those are the things that kind of made me come to that. But yeah, I mean, there are always challenges and I, and I read and I read and I read, and then I ask someone who, who knows more. And then I find out, Oh no, I made a mistake about this. And at the end of the day, I think most of us academics are perfectionists and we want to get things right. You, but you do your best and you know, you got to move on. And I'm sure somebody's going to say, Oh, you made a mistake about this or you didn't know that. And I'm going to say, okay, I'm going to try to fix it. But yeah, I mean, sure. Definitely. That's a problem. Understood. Okay, um, just a couple more questions that I wanted to ask. Um, I was wondering if you would talk people through um, Leanne's work on some of the jokes and so forth on representations, the new new age in Hollywood, and the way that she deals with them. And specifically, what I, I sort of thought reading through that chapter is that maybe she treats those representations a little bit more mercifully than some other Native writers. I don't know what you think. You know, it's funny. I feel like when you start reading her work, I mean, it it just goes on forever. I mean, I taught a class on race representation and justice last spring, and it's just shocking to me how little um, sort of mainstream America really thinks about American Indian representation. Um, 
yeah, so the merciful thing I'll, I'll get to in just a bit. I mean, she she makes it funny. And I think that's one of the beauties of um, Indian radio days. Thank you again for <laughs> reminding me of that. I mean, that, that one's, it is so funny. And it, and it really turns, a lot of the jokes in that turn on things like, you know, cheap Cherokee and uh, whatever all the, you know, the jokes about all these different ways that Native culture is commodified um, in the United States. Um, I think, you know, one of the things that I that I get out of that chapter and I'm really interested in is um, the mascot stuff, because, you know, she was at the University of Illinois when they got rid of their Native American mascot, which, of course, just continues to be this big cultural divider there because they got rid of it officially, but didn't get rid of it unofficially. But she watched that. And one of the things, you know, she talked about in an interview that I cite in the book is how like the American Indian studies department would regularly get like bomb threats and threats of violence because they're protesting against this, this totally fake, totally fake Indian mascot. And, and it's really, it's really shocking how, um, you know, how these kind of, these images of native people have gotten embedded into the colonial mindset of the United States and that they like embrace these, these really racist and harmful images. And that's, that's another thing I cite a study about the way that native children uh, exposed to these mascot images are, I mean, this is damaging to them and sure. Why wouldn't it be right? Um, There was back when I was, um, back when I was teaching on the reservation, there was this, um, there was this news story about uh, a school, I think it was Northern Colorado. I'm not sure which one it was, but they, uh, like a co, um, some kind of co-ed sports team picked up, picked up a mascot. They call them the fighting whiteies. You can still like go online and find, find like t-shirts and stuff for the fighting whiteies. And it's like this middle-aged white dude with like, you know, some horn rim glasses. On. <laughs> and, that's, and that's their mascot, fighting whiteies. And every time I tell students about this, you know, just, just turning that into a mascot. I mean, they think it's so funny and so shocking. And I think, wow, how is that? It's just, it's just amazing. Like people just can't, the inability of people to see native people is real. Um, and so anyway, I think that's where that comes from. So why do, why do I think she's a little more merciful? Um, you know, I don't know. I mean, she's very funny. She likes to be funny. She likes to tell jokes. I mean, even in shell shaker, you know, the dog named George Bush. I mean, she's, she's, She's got this irreverent kind of sense of humor. Um, but I do think that that story, uh, that that essay piece in, in Chop Talking on Other Realities is, is quite telling, the one I fuck up in Japan. Because have you read that, James? I have, yeah. So you know how she um, she's just going on and on about native frauds to her host, you know, um, who's brought her there. And she's doing this in front of the great Buddha and, and she doesn't realize how incredibly disrespectful she's being. And then, and then later realizes it. And I think, in a, you know, this is from something that happened to her in the early nineties. And I think, um, that having this global perspective and even the one Carlos Castaneda, Castaneda um, lives in Romania, I think is what it's called. Yeah. I love that essay too. I really love it uh, because she's constantly being presented with these, you know, really crazy sort of images and perceptions of native culture. And she's trying to sort of argue with it, but she's diplomatically giving chocolates to people and eventually comes to understand what that story means to those people. So, I mean, you know, I, I can't presume to speak for her, but based on her writing, I would say perhaps some of her global experiences have, have made her sort of see it differently. But at the same time, like I said, I think working at the University of Illinois and dealing with that really, really traumatic and divisive mascot issue um, is also, you know, it's very, I think that was painful. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, of of course, and and you know maybe it speaks to something of the healing spirit in her work as well. That she's trying to overcome that through a sort of kindness somewhere. Um, I, I wanted well, to. Oh, sorry, you no, you go. Well, yeah, I think I think her. I also think her theory of tribalography um, kind of comes into play here. Uh, well, in which case, I always struggle to get a firm grip on what tribalography is and how it can be used as a critical tool. So I'd love to hear your explanation of it. <laughs> 
Well, in the initial uh, version in the story of America that came out um, in the early 2000, I think it was 2000, she talks about, um, you know, this is, she talks about the Haudenosaunee Confederacy and how the founding fathers of the United States used that story in order to make this country, right? And so this creative possibility. So it's about, she talks about, this is a way of storytelling that can bring past, present, and future together, native and non-native people. And then you start to see, like, um, there was a piece in Studies in American Indian Lit that read evidence of red as tribalography, which I think makes a lot of sense. I take that and I argue that you can also read Shell Shaker and Miko King's tribalographically. Um, but what kind of blows my mind uh, is like, so, so in that Carlos Castaneda lives in Romania story, she's listening to all these people <laughs> talking about this, you know, um, you know, debunked story of this, Yaki shaman. And she's, she's listening and listening and listening. And finally she says, I realized it was a tribalography. And so she's able to take this idea, this sort of indigenous method of storytelling, which is what she sort of talks about tribalography as being, um, and sort of translates it into this other culture's desire to tell a story that's meaningful to them based on what has happened to them as a result of, you know, communism and sort of that kind of history that they've experienced. Um, so there's that part of it. There's a storytelling aspect. She's done an interesting thing in in the last few essays she's written about it and, and writing about embodied tribalography. And so she says, you know, what I didn't think about in the initial kind of version was the idea of embodiment of land. And so this play that she has co-written with Monique Mojica called Sideshow Freaks and Circus Engines, which I, th- I think has been performed, but I don't think it's published yet. Um, but she talks about how they look they did this big study of all these mounds in the Southeast uh, and other parts of the country. And they looked at the way that they, um, the native people used um, layers of soil to build these mounds. And so they tried to use layers to build these plays. And so she's calling it a new native dramaturgical model. And so, but this is all sort of land, you know, based in the land. And so how do then these stories, this kind of actually comes back to American Indian literary nationalism too. How do then this kind of pulling together of these disparate stories, how is it related to embodying land? And she's, you know, in that interview, I think, yeah, the interview in the back of my book, she says, you know, so I embody the lands of my ancestors. And so that land is a part of me. And if you if your if your creation story says you come out of the land, well, that that makes a lot of sense, right? Um, so I don't know if that's helpful, <laughs> but that's that's my understanding of tribalography. No, definitely. And to finish off, I'd like to uh, just quote uh, your own words back at you as from the final chapter. Uh, you say, Chuck talking on other realities is about global oppression, whether it's rooted in political or economic power struggles. Rather than condemning any one group, the narrator ultimately seeks a balm for the scars left by the complicated and intertwined histories of 20th century military and political wars with a turn to the spiritual, a localized Choctaw spirituality springing from southeastern indigenous lands wherein a healing can began. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about Howe's work in the Middle East and how that sort of speaks to that idea of healing and taking from the local to the the transnational, um, particularly with relation to Israel, Palestine and the contemporary political moment. Well, I think that, you know, (laughs) she has arguments with Jewish or her character, a character has arguments with Jewish characters in that particular piece. Um, but she also so consciously um, connects it to, you know, all of these various, as I say, various folks from different oppressed groups. Um, when she sees in that in that final part of um, Chalk Talking on Other Realities, um, she 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 makes that sort of gesture, that linguistic gesture toward Hashtali, you know, or the sun. Um, I think that she's I, th- I think that to kind of come back to tribalography, she brings all these stories together because she wants to show us something about the way the world works and the way that we can heal. Um, and I guess, you know, to come back to the Southeast, I was, I was having this conversation recently um, 
with someone because I'm 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 working on using this really interesting role playing game that Jace Weaver and Laura Adams Weaver have written about um, Cherokee removal, and we there there ha- we need a healing here, and I think that's something that Native South work can begin to do. Uh, and what I mean by here is I'm talking from North Carolina. We need a healing in the Southeast when it comes to what has happened with removal. Of course, we need healing, you know, throughout the Americas in terms of indigeneity and, and the world, really. But I think that her own moves, and she says this, you know, in that interview, uh, actually a, cu- a couple of interviews with me, she talks about, you know, I was angry, right? Um and that's what we get with the the story at the Buddha. I was angry. And then she takes a moment to try to kind of find the way out of that anger. So I think, I think that is what she's trying to do. And she said very overtly um, in that last interview that the one that's in my book that, you know, she's been, she's been trying to heal herself from, from centuries of, of pain related to uh, U.S. settler colonialism. So I I think that um, there are people who have talked about this issue more eloquently than I <laughs> uh, in terms of um, sort of the Middle East and the relationship between Palestine and indigenous peoples. But um, I will also say that she told me in that interview that because I was like, you know, I asked her, what, what is it that had, um, you know, really has interested you in the Middle East? And of course, she's lived there and traveled there quite a bit. Um, but she said tribes, tribal people, like I understood how people organize themselves. And so that is that kind of way of seeing um, beyond sort of the Choctaw local onto that global and saying, okay, we have this thing in common. Uh, now, now, what are we going to kind of do as we move forward? And I'm not trying to say that, you know, she has all the answers, right? But I, I as you, the, the piece that you quoted, I do think um, she's trying to find a way to help herself and to help people heal by thinking about these connections that we have. Okay, well, that's wonderful. I've, we're going to leave it there. There's so many more questions that we could go through, but that was that was really great. Thank you. So thank you very much, Kirsten. Um, and thanks to our listeners for downloading this episode of the New Books and Native American Studies podcast, part of the New Books Network. Do please check out the New Books Network uh, website at newbooksnetwork.com for other author interviews in Native American Studies and indeed many other fields. From me, goodbye. Thank you.